Hello and welcome. My name's Ben. I'm the CEO of Charlie HR, and this is the Culture Ops Podcast. We're the podcast that's trying to lift the lid on the challenging situations that affect your business and your culture on a daily basis. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Culture Ops Podcast. We build and produce products that are consumed by a diverse world, yet often some of the companies that are working on those products are some of the least diverse. It feels from where I'm sitting that we're moving past the days of DEI projects where organizations are moving through tick box exercises to create the illusion that they care. Instead, I hope that we're entering a time where tackling inequality in the workplace is something that is baked into the foundations of the cultures that we're crafting. A world where every initiative views equality as a non negotiable versus something that can be tacked on and added at a later date. We've spoken on this podcast before about our own journey at Charlie with building a more inclusive and equitable culture, the mistakes that we've made along the way, and the progress that we've started to see. We've learned from conversations with Chacho Valdez and Sean Page. So today I'm excited to learn again. We're going to talk about how to build a culture that confronts racial bias. So to do that, I'd like to welcome to the show... Daisy Alger Dominguez, Chief People Officer at Vice Media Group and author. Daisy, welcome. How are you? Oh, Ben, I'm doing well this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving up your time. I really appreciate that. And before we dive into, I guess, the topic, um, I'd love for you to sort of introduce to the audience the, the role that you do today and also maybe a bit about your journey into it. Well, uh, anyone's professional journey is usually a lot, uh, a lot less um, linear these days. Um, but I have been in the people, as they say now, um, in diversity, equity, and inclusion space for a good two decades. Um, I currently am chief um, people officer at Vice Media Group, which means that I am responsible for a global team that delivers. Um, all total rewards, that's your compensation, your benefits, uh, payroll, um, delivers uh, employee engagement initiatives, learning and development initiatives, um, anything that has to do with how you recruit, how you grow, and how you retain talent. My team is responsible for that. And I'm also additionally responsible for our global real estate procurement um, and uh, systems integrations. And so I have a bit of a hybrid people, culture, and corporate services function. Amazing. I mean, uh, your role sounds a hell of a lot more complex than than, than what I do today. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm a little bit in awe. Um, what does uh, a culture that confronts racial bias look like, do you think? And are there some real gold standards that you've experienced uh, in your years doing what you do? Well, first of all, let's, let's begin by thinking about the fact that we've only in corporate America, if you will, um, started talking about dismantling racism in the workplace in the last two years or so. Um, I've been at this for a long time. This work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, it actually um, has been, um, if, if you think about the lifespan of this work, it's it's a good two to three decades. It really started in the 70s and 80s in the U.S. as part of compliance measures um, and as part of 
um, concerns back those back you know many decades ago with talent shortages and ensuring that we were maximizing access to talent in broad swaths of of areas. And over the years, it has sort of ebbed and flowed in how it um, is actualized and operationalized in organizations. But it really hasn't been until the last two years, uh, post George Floyd's murder, um, post the pressures that the pandemic has created, which I believe really what the pandemic has done is exacerbated long-held frustrations that employees had in their workplaces. And it has emboldened employees to demand and ask for what they have always rightfully deserved and what they have always rightfully wanted. And it has further shown a light on the marginalization and the harm caused to racialized employees. And so that all it's what we're what we're facing now is a confluence of all of those events and um uh and actions and experiences and the fact that we have all reoriented our lives so dramatically in the last two years. Um, and we have a new generation in the workforce now, Gen Z, who has a very different um approach and and you know and needs in the workplace. And frankly, you know, a much bolder stance on what, you know, on what work should be for them. That my generation, I'm an Xer, um, you know, we just thought we had to come to work and take what was given to us and hope that things would get a little better. And, you know, and I, I actually love the fact that this this workforce is demanding what, you know, what what really I say, what everybody deserves. Um, so I, I just wanted to put it in context that way because um, there's still there's still not um, not enough work being done. We're, we're in the very early stages of really addressing racial inequities in organizations. The good news is that we've been doing this work and we have great research and resources and examples from other industries that can be used to really look at how do you build, I call it building readiness in organizations to do this work. And so I joined VICE in May of 2020. Two weeks later, George Floyd was murdered. And about a week, two weeks after that, the entire world um, went, you know, up in storm as, you know, organizations and individuals started reckoning with the long-held harms for Black people in America and in, in institutions and organizations. And around that time, I realized, and, you know, this was my, my first chief people officer role uh, from a global perspective. I had always had talent roles in companies like Google and Viacom and Disney. Um, and having the background of diversity, equity, and inclusion was actually what helped me hold our teams together in that moment of such deep disruption and pain. And it was, it was my, a, a bit of, there was a moment of clarity for me in the midst of all the madness and the pain and the hurt, because I too hurt like everybody else, um, where I was able to sort of, you know, help people pause and move away from the reactionary stance that most organizations and individuals had of, you know, I need to virtue signal. I need to tell everybody that I'm a good person. I need to, you know, make sure that, you know, people don't say something bad about me, you know, just sort of a million and one things that were racing through individuals. And I was able to just remind folks, A, racism is not new. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is something that we've been grappling with for quite a long time. B, we're not going to solve for it overnight. And C, if you have the will to do this work, we can build the skill to do it. So let's let's do this. And 
I was really fortunate to have a great leader in my boss, Nancy Dubuque, and partners um, across the organization, and just the most talented and brilliant and committed employees in the organization who were just not taking no for an answer, right? They, everybody wanted action now. And I had to quickly build trust, quickly build a bit of a know-how of the logic of the place and a bit of the illogic, if you will, so that I could um, be responsive, but not reactive. And I was really keen on focusing on reminding folks, we're going to get to the right solutions here, but I need, I need to listen. I need to gather information. I need to identify where the root causes of some of the problems are for us because they're unique in every organization and general and many others as well. And then we're going to build a, a map, a roadmap for how to do this work. And that's, that's, that is, that is the way I, I believe that's my, um, if you will, my model of change. Um, I, I recently wrote a book. It's coming out in March. It's called Inclusion Revolution, The Essential Guide to Dismantling Racial Inequity in the Workplace. And I wrote that in the last year and a half, but I had been writing it and thinking about it and doing this work for decades before. And what the last two years did for me was allowed me to put forth what I had been talking about and, and hoping for and dreaming for in organizations and put it into a, um, a document, you know, my, my book as a roadmap that uses the model that I've, that I've been developing over the years, which is a four-step model. And it's, it's actually quite simple, Ben. It's not, I, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's powerful, but it's actually quite simple. It's the first step is reflect. The second step is vision. The third step is act. And the fourth step is persist. It's quite a simple model. And I think it's, you know, it's frankly, it's a model that I use for all things in life, not just dismantling racial inequity, but it it requires all of us to be willing to spend that, that early time reflecting and, and listening and sitting in discomfort and ambiguity and, and being willing to not know what to do, but being willing to try to discover what to do and then to vision how you want to be part of it, right? The vision part is to figure out what role you want to play. And we can all play different roles, right? I, I have decided to play a role as a DNI practitioner, as a people and culture leader. You can decide to play a role you know, as, as someone who shares stories and who, you know, who brings this information to the masses. My husband is a teacher and, uh, you know, and a scientist, and he is constantly talking about design principles from a, you know, technology perspective with an inclusive lens. You know, all of us choose the roles that we want to play in this work. And the point is, is that we have agency to do that. And sometimes we we forget that we have that agency or we give up our agency to drive that change or we live in such privilege that we choose to not see what's happening around us and walk away. And so my my book is intended to really spend a lot of time in those early stages like, no, you've got to you've got to look in the mirror. You've got to look in the mirror and see who you are and how inadvertently or not your actions are supporting and, you know, and, you know, and damaging and, you know, and driving and, you know, doing a bit of everything every single day. It could be inadvertent. It could be 
you know, unconscious. It could be very conscious, but it is your choice to decide what role you want to play. And then you've got to, once you figure that out, you've got to act. And by act, I mean, test, iterate, try things, you know, habits are built by, by doing things over and over again. And so I always tell people, I'm like, there's a whole wide menu of things you can do. I'm not telling you to do all of them. I'm telling you to pick one today and build your muscle on that. And then once you get good at that, try something else and then try something else. And then make sure that you are building that muscle so that you can persist, which is the fourth step, because obstacles are always going to show up in this work. I've been doing this for a long time. And like I said earlier, I've seen the ebbs and flows. I've seen when diversity is hot and exciting and when nobody wants to talk about it. And I've seen when we invest in it and then when we stop investing in it. I see, I have for years come to meetings where I am sort of doe-eyed and excited about, let's talk about diversity and inclusion. And people really just glaze, you know, with glazed eyes, look at me and say, I'm just too tired. We've done so much. We haven't gotten anything done. And my favorite response to, to, to people when they say that is like, you haven't done anything. <laughs> Why is everybody tired when we haven't even done anything? Well, you know, we, we've got to, you know, we've got to, we can't get into diversity, you know, inertia and fatigue, as you will, until we actually do some real work here. And so that, but those obstacles come in many ways because people are afraid of change. They don't want change. It's, you know, mm. we can talk about that later. Yeah. And so that is why the, that, that's how I believe um, and it's, and it's not a model that's purely linear, right? You can go back to it, but you've got to do that early stage reflection and visioning and, and, and go back to it after you've done it. I do this. You and I, at the beginning of this call, we're talking about the beginning of the year being a year of reflection and thinking about, you know, who we are and what we want to be. I'm constantly reflecting on where I failed, what, you know, what I need to be better at. How do I want to grow as a leader? Um, that that's, that those are the things that even even those of us who are deep in this work have to also take the time to consider. And so I'm constantly telling, and I tell I'm a 13 year old daughter. I'm constantly telling her, well, today I'm having a day of reflection, or today I'm having a day of action. I have a bias towards action, so I like to do I like to do things. But I know that if I'm in the constant doing, I'm not taking the time that I need to really assess whether what I'm doing is making a difference and whether what I'm doing is driving the change that. I, that I said I wanted to change or the change that actually is needed, right? Am I testing my own assumptions? Am I actually am I actually doing this for others or am I doing it to make myself feel better? It's all of those questions that I post throughout my book and that I'm constantly talking about. Talking about. I mean, I think I'm going to clip that that sort of that 10 minutes there and just and just say like if people want to think about like Diversity, equity, and inclusion from a from an from a, and be given an overview of how to think about it and a structure and a framework that was incredibly succinct, um, and uh, and I'm inspired by your energy and your passion. If I can, if we can reflect for a moment, and I want to ask, I guess, a, a pointed question, which is that you you talked about you know, the energy that we're seeing from Gen Z in terms of this is something, you know, you, I think you use the words, you know, they, they're sort of clamoring to act. We've got to do something about this now. You also talked about the fact that you're sitting in a position where you've, you've been doing this for years. You've been sitting in, 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 in meetings where people don't act, don't engage. Do you look at this sort of um, like perfect storm of, scenarios and situations covid 
the sort of political environment in America. Um, and, you know, the advent of technology, you know, ultimately, moments like George Floyd, they have been happening, uh, you know, across the world for, for years. That's not a new thing, but the new thing is that we saw it, right? Um, do you look at that perfect storm and are you grateful or are you grateful for for the uh environment that it has uh, that is provided to allow you to make progress on the things that you care so deeply about or is it frustrating to look at that perfect storm and say why did it have to come to this why why did all of these things have to happen for us to um see that we have to do something about this well ben i'm human uh you know i i can i can dwell in the frustration just just like anybody else um and i i i never want any harm to happen to anyone i i i wish we could as humans learn otherwise sadly we don't sadly we need these you know confluences of events and dramatic moments to make us reflect uh, which is which is why it's it's so important for me that we that we think about the structure of doing this work because I don't want us to have to get to a bad situation to reflect. I want us to build those muscles so that we're constantly reflecting and thinking about it. However, it happened. And so I will say that, um, you know, I hate the phrase silver lining and I know we've been using it for the last two years um, all the time. Um, but, you know, I, I will I will go ahead and say that, you know, that there is there there is there is something positive and good to be taken from everything. I believe that's that's my philosophy in life. And um, before before George Floyd was murdered, you know, I accepted this job at Vice and um, the reason why I accepted the, the role advice was twofold. Um, I was consulting. I was consulting on workplace culture. I was loving it. I quickly started seeing how the world was changing. And this was, you know, I started interviewing for this job in March, which is when we started going into lockdown. I, I, ne- I did not meet my boss for an entire year in person. Right. We interviewed this way via video. Um, it was it was quite wild. Um, but I remember seeing in that moment and thinking, we've been talking about the future of work and a, and work that will be um, more inclusive and more thriving. And by the, the things that I have been researching and, you know, and dreaming up for workplaces for so long. And I had an immediate um, reaction to this moment we were living in is we have been fast forwarded into future of work. And I want to be in a place where I help architect it. And when I help, where I help others navigate it. And so that was the principal reason why I wanted to come to Vice. The second reason was that I had never worked for a youth media company. And I had worked for some of the world's largest technology and media companies, Google, Disney as an example, that had that had been seeking the youth market, but they didn't have a lockdown on it the way that Vice has. And I wanted to work for a place that was going to challenge me as an older <laughs> professional now. Um, and that was, you know, that where I thought I would be able to contribute and learn from. And, you know, and so that's, and all of that has panned out. Right. Um, and like, and as I said, I joined on May 11th, two weeks later, the world started shifting. Um, and it was working in an organization where, um, employees immediately 
And, and this is part of the Vice culture because it's a youth media company and also because it's been from its very beginnings a disruptive media organization that has challenged the norms of most organizations. Uh, you know, I come from traditional organizations, um, even Google, um, where there was a lot more openness, where there's a lot of structure and processes. And, you know, in between you and your CEO, there's 20 different thousand people that you have to go through. I joined Vice and, you know, two weeks into being in the company, I'm sending an email to the global employee base, introducing myself and trying to hold space for the pain and the angst that we were feeling as a collective community for what was happening in the world. Um, our CEO gets emails directly. I get emails directly all the time. Employees were demanding of me, um, you know, we need racial training by Friday. <laughs> I remember being in a meeting was like, we need racial bias training by Friday. And, you know, and I had everyone around me trying to coach me and guide me and protect me in my early days and saying, you know, you don't have to answer that. And, you know, and, and there was a part of me that said, no, I, I, I have to, because I'm introducing myself to these individuals. So they need to know who I am. And I also need to be honest with them. And I said, here's the thing, I'm not going to deliver racial training by Friday, because what you're asking me to do, to do is to pull up training, you know, from a library of training and just deliver it and just assume that change is going to happen that way. And I've been doing this work long enough to know that it takes a whole lot more than that to change hearts and minds. So what I am asking of you is the time to determine what is needed in this organization. And my commitment to you, my promise to you, is that we are going to deliver what is needed here and what will move the needle for us. And we did, right? We spent that summer doing a listening session with employees, really digging into our policies, our processes, you know, what our employees needed. And it was in the fall that we delivered our first inclusive management training. It was in the fall that we delivered unconscious bias training as a way of level setting the organization. And it was the following spring and summer that we delivered training that was focused on racial bias and, you know, and, and dialogue and, and equipping managers with those skill sets. But we needed to take that journey and we needed to space it out for the organization in a way that was going to be relevant to us and in a way that was going to create stickiness and in a way that was going to focus on who I believe are the linchpin of organizations and why I wrote my book and why I do my work, which is managers. I wanted to ensure that we were building competence, confidence, and compassion in managers. That was what I was super duper focused on, as, as my daughter would say. Like, this is what I knew. If we, if we're able to enable managers to build their confidence um, that they can do this work and do it well, build their competence, their skill sets in engaging with the employees the way that they want to engage. And, you know, and, and not, not that I needed to build compassion for them, but help them build that sense of empathy that would enable them to be far more equipped at building cultures of belonging and psychological safety, right? All these big fancy words that we use, which at the end of the day are fundamentally about making sure that you're feeling seen, that you're feeling heard, that you're feeling valued, that you're feeling understood. That's all as humans we want. And we want that person who is responsible for us, who directs us, who manages us, who's, you know, who, whose decisions inform our career growth, our, uh, you know, the salary that puts food on the table uh, you know, for my family, who make all these decisions. You know, we want them 
to understand and see and value us. And so that's that's why that, to me, it's so important that that segment of the population get the level of support. And they, and, that, and they also need support, right? They get the directives from the top, they get the push from the bottom, but they're often ill-equipped and ill-supported to do that work well. And so that, to me, is that's my mission in supporting that that segment, because I believe if we support that segment, we support the whole of the organization. Yeah, well, we know that a person's experience at work is defined mostly by the person that is managing them. Like, you know, we know that people leave organizations because of, of managers, and we know that that person that they're working with most closely is, is, is that, I guess, the person that's having the, the most profound effect on their working experience, you know, when uh, whenever someone comes to me and says, I want to think about my, my culture, I always say, you've got three levers, you've got your people, you've got your processes and your policies. And too often we focus, I think, unfortunately, on on trying to come up with processes or training or, or policies. Let, let, this is, well, let, let's introduce a new policy. And we don't do enough of the hard work, which is actually we're dealing with relationships here which is really difficult and really hard but but we need to we need to give people the support to be able to build those relationships and be effective at building those relationships mm-hmm. and that's deep work it's hard work and and yes. there's there's no there's no sticking plaster for that right Mm-mm. no there isn't i mean management is is the hardest thing we do and the thing that we are least trained on um, to do and 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 historically traditionally Ben it's been very much about building the hard skills of it and increasingly what we're seeing is it's the softer skills that are that are that are not just needed and necessary that are going to be increasingly demanded um, that this is this it's not just that it's important it is absolutely it is but the train has left the station is what I tell managers we'll see managing as it was will never be okay. And so we're all going to have to, and including myself, I've had to learn how to manage differently and, you know, and how to spend time and energy building proximity with my team. And I have a team that's global um, and I send them a weekly note. And I've been doing this since I was at Disney, but when I was, when it was at Disney, it was a weekly newsletter that came from Daisy, right? It was a formal newsletter and it would share, um, it would share industry insights and what was going on and just a few little pithy lines from me. And over the years, those notes in other companies became a bit more personal, but it wasn't until I joined Vice and the world that we were living in and me trying to build connections with people that I had never met and would not meet. I actually have not met yet, right? I've been in the company for a year, a little bit over a year and a half, and I have yet to meet a broad swath of my team. But I knew that I had to dedicate that time and that extra energy and, and heart and mind to helping them know me and not just know me as a mother and as a wife, and they, they get all of that, <laughs> they hear all of that, but also my leadership philosophy, you know, the things that I struggle with, the times that I misstep and that I, you know, that, that I learn from, um, the, the modeling of behavior and processes and policies so that it's not just something that's coming from the top down, as in Daisy said this, it's providing the context for my team of why we're doing this. I spend a lot of time um, doing that and, and, and getting better at it and learning from my own mistakes. You know, I, I did, um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll give you a humble, uh, example of, uh, of one of my, uh, one of my missteps. It's, you know, I realized last year, a year of tremendous exhaustion, right? I, I, t- I tell people, everyone was saying how burnt out everyone was. I was like, we're not burnt out. We're burnt crispy. We've got nothing else to give. You know, like I, if, you know, the most, the most even tempered of my team members, if I ask for one more thing, they're just going to lose it because they've got so much on their plates right now. And I realized that um, I, I tend to have big visions and big dreams. And I, have, and I have set really lofty goals for our team. I learned from working at Google, um, you know, just, you know, moonshots are the way, you know, I, 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 we call them that at, at Google. And I remember when I went to Google, I was like, oh, I've been, I've been, I've been dreaming in moonshots my entire life, but you know, this is a great framework. Um, so when I came to, to, um, Vice, I, I, I do the same with my team, but I realized that when I say I want to be up here, I want to build these amazing initiatives that my team feels the pressure to deliver for me because they're so amazing. They want to do it. They want to make me proud. They want to deliver. Um, and I realized that I was setting the bar so high that I, and I wasn't giving them the guidance of, wait a second, we don't have to start at 10x. We can start at 1x and build towards 10x. And so I, I in a global meeting, I just humbly told the team, I think I have been exhausting you more than I should even as I tell you all that I want, that I prize your wellness <laughs> and your well-being. And so here, let me tell you something. I don't need you to build me the Cadillac version of something. You can build me the Fiat version of something and we can build towards that. What is not acceptable for me is not to do anything. I will push you to the edges every single day, but I will always be there to pick you up. I will always be there to hold you because I believe that that's where growth happens. So I will push you, but I'm never going to push you to the place that of exhaustion and of failure. That is, I don't believe in that, but I, but I, but I'm afraid that in my, in my brand in my grand visioning of things, I'm pushing you to those places. Um, and the team, I could see a collective sigh, Ben, everybody was like, Oh, that's what she means. And and since then, it's become kind of the catchphrase that the team uses, although I've been corrected um, because I obviously do not know anything about cars. <laughs> and one of my colleagues, one of the, my team members said, it was like, you know, we'd, we'd like you to consider changing the terminology. And instead of Cadillac, maybe what you want to say is Maserati. <laughs> that's okay, the version. Sure. And instead of Fiat, because... As I understand it, Fiat's are respectable cars, sure. <laughs> and, you're, and then and then the, and the way that you're framing it, I, apparently I was somewhat, you know, uh, you know, disrespectful to, to Fiat, Fiat yeah. cars um, that I should use, and I'm forgetting the name of the car now. But the Auto Metro, are I had to look it up. I obviously do not know cars, but it's you know, it's a it's a a lower cost model, and so sure. I you know, I joked and I went I I emailed back to the team and I said I stand corrected. It's Maserati and Auto Metro. But you get the point. Let's do it. Um, So, you know, we have moments like that where as a leader, I have to humbly recognize I I can't push my team to a place where they can't with, you know, where where they I, I, I believe in pushing my team to the place of discomfort, but I can't give them messaging that feels so uncomfortable 100 percent of the time for them. I need to be able to 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 um, draw out the story of what that looks like. I think it's balance, isn't it? It's, 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 it's creating balance between the messages that you're talking about and space so that it isn't just a constant go, go, go. It, there is, there's space for people to, to sort of 
show up in a way that feels relevant and appropriate for them in that moment. You, you know, you were using yourself as an example. You were giving an example of, I guess, how you, how you communicate to the team, you know, on a, on a topic like, um, uh, you know, our ambition. What, what's the role that leadership play in crafting a culture that um, takes into account, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and, and, and inclusion. It, you know, can you build a culture that takes, the, takes those things into account as foundational elements if your leadership team are not on board and are not engaged? Or, you know, is, is that an absolute prerequisite for any organization that their leadership team have to play a role in that? They have to be engaged. They have to value it. Yes and no uh, is my answer. Yes, because leadership sets a tone, and and they set the tone not just by what they say, not just by what they say, but what they do. And you know, and so you know, a lot of the work that I do is on ensuring that our leadership is you know is setting that right tone. But it's not about telling people what to do. It's about showing them what it looks like. And it's about showing them what the value is. And it's also about helping upskill where necessary. Um, but I, the reason why I say yes and no is that it doesn't, it doesn't mean that everyone on the leadership table has to be bought in. What you need is a couple. What you need is, you know, is, is a couple of, uh, of leaders who are modeling the way, who are showing the value of it. Because guess what? everybody likes to win. <laughs> so when you see your peers doing something that's working for them, you're like, wait a second, I need to try that too. So I, while I spend a lot of energy and time, you know, engaging with leadership and, you know, and supporting them, I, you know, I, I, I try to focus on those that I know are going to make the most immediate impact and change and that are, and that have the most willingness to try and do this work, um, and then use that as models of success that others can replicate. And you know, there's again, there's nothing, there's nothing better than seeing a team that is thriving because everyone wants to know. I was like, how'd you do it? What you know? And and half of the time, Ben, it's not you know these really complicated things. It's simply, hey, I created a few listening sessions. I have one on ones with my you know, I do one on ones with my entire team every quarter and a half, because sometimes it takes a quarter and a half to get through it. And I make sure that I connect with everyone on my team, no matter their level. Um, not, you know, obviously I connect with my direct reports more constantly, but those that I wouldn't normally see, I meet once a quarter globally. And I do that to build that proximity with them. It's extra time, it's extra energy, but the value of that, and sometimes we talk about children, our kids, sometimes we talk about a project that they're working on, that they're having a hard time with. We, I, there's never a set agenda. It's always intended to do that. But I firmly believe that that helps build cohesiveness for the organization, and it helps it helps us build that sense of trust and respect, and you know, and you know, and connection that is so deeply needed. And so I share that with my team members and I learn from my team members. I have I have a colleague of mine uh, and she's just absolutely brilliant and you know she does these bi-weekly global she has a, a much more larger global remit than I do. Um, well, sorry, we both have a global remit. She has a global a larger global team than I do and you know she's constantly thinking about 
um, you know, ways to recognize the team that are fun and they're, they're a creative team that are fun and unique. And, you know, every time that I go to one of her one, you know, her town halls, I come back with an idea. I was like, oh, we should try this because that's a lot funner than what we're doing, you know, in our <laughs> traditional HR way. We're, we're kind of saying, hey, you're a superstar. And they're, they're like, you're the, you know, the grand whatever, and <laughs> you know, with stars and whatnot. So there's, there's always all this constant learning and, you know, but it, but it has to, that tone has to be set from the top. And when you start seeing that it gets felt all the way to the bottom and let's not forget the bottom of your organization are the ones that are closest to the sore spots in an organization. When you're at the top, you don't see that as much. You don't feel that even as much as I try to connect with the organization, my organization, and to know what's happening, I'm sure there's a lot that I don't know because I'm not in those day-to-days. But I have I have the to build that empathy and sympathy to know that those folks at the bottom are the ones that feel the sore spots every single day. And it's my job to reduce that pain for them. And the w- first way for me to try and reduce that is to get to know what it is. And that means that I need to get proximate to it. That means that I need to ask questions that I normally wouldn't ask. That means that I need to normalize, not just assuming how people are feeling, but normalize asking people. And And you'd be surprised, Ben, how many organizations, you know, that that sense of secrecy and, and whispers and quietness and, and not telling leadership the truth because you've been failed by them, because you don't believe that they will drive change, because, you know, because they're the ones that are exerting the damage that, that you're feeling. That creates a darkness and a murkiness in organizations that is really hard. And I find that I have to tell people over and over again, it's okay, you can trust me. I can't solve a problem that I do not know. So I'm asking you to help me understand it. But there's still such feelings of fear in organizations that we have we have to get rid of. What do you think scares leaders to take action? Oh my goodness. Um, what scares leaders is everything. Is is there the first thing that scares leaders, I think, is their worry about messing up and looking like they don't know what they don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like because as leaders, we've all been, you know, in in the training that we've received, or at least in the models that we've experienced. A leader knows everything. A leader is always right. A leader, you know, drives a strategy. So I think the first thing that worries leaders in this work in particular, if you haven't done it, is um, the the risk of um, looking like you don't know and, you know, and messing up. I think that that's that's the risk that, and I wrote an article about that in the Harvard Business Review. It's that paralyzing fear that keeps us from doing anything. Um, for mid-level managers, it's similar, but I think the risk is higher in that there's a fear of potentially losing your status in the organization, your your role, your job, um, respect of your peers and, and of the leaders who define what your career trajectory is going to be. And for more junior people is the real fear of being fired, of losing your job, of, you know, of being demoted, of not having opportunities for growth. There are fears across all levels of organizations, Ben, and they paralyze us from doing the right thing. So um, at the beginning of the episode, you talked about your framework and, and the really important thing that you said that I, that I want to highlight was that we shouldn't be scared of doing of doing something, of starting the process, of, of picking something and, and running with it. And that action is, is what is required here. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if someone's listening to this podcast and um, and and they've heard what they said, you said, and they said, I, I want to, I want to start doing, I want to start doing this work uh, internally. Where are they starting, and and what should that first action that they pick up at the top of the pile be? You know, I, like like I said, the first action is to have a you know to spend some time looking in the mirror, to to spend some time looking in the mirror and and thinking about your own actions, and then to spend some time listening to your teams, to you know to ask questions, to ask, and I, I always say not just ask questions, ask better questions. You know, when I was when I was moving up in my career, people would often ask me, well, how do we build better diversity in organizations? How do we you know how are we more inclusive? And, you know, and I often tell people now, you know, what would have been a better question? A better question would have been, Daisy, what is limiting you in your progress in in the workplace? Daisy, what are the obstacles you're facing as a woman of color? What are the challenges that you and others and, you know, in, in your in your segment, in your group and, you know, in your teams, what what do those challenges look like and how can I help reduce those obstacles to your success? Those are the better questions. But we we don't get that we 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 haven't been before i don't think that's that's the case anymore we haven't been given the freedom and the um and you know and sort of the that um that op- that that willingness to be open and to really understand your team so that's the first step before taking any action before even thinking about what you want to do you need to understand what is hanging your teams up and that's not the whole team, but it's understanding, like I said earlier, with leaders, managers, and junior levels, all levels of your teams, all geographies, all groups. We tend to, we t- we tend to, because it's easy and it's a shortcut. We tend to go by who the, you know, what we hear from the loudest, what we hear from our general go-tos, but we don't spend the time really digging into the spaces that we don't dig into enough to look for the information that is that is always there, that is sort of digging right beneath the surface, but that is the powerful information and intelligence that you need to do things differently. Amazingly profound, and uh, and really, don't want, I don't want to spoil that point by asking a further question. I'm just going to leave that as the the final takeaway for people to um, for people to walk away with and trying to understand what is is holding your team back. Doing that reflection and listening. I. Um, Leaders don't listen enough, and we don't we don't press on the fact that listening as a skill is something that we we need to constantly improve upon and work on as as leaders to be really effective um, at our jobs. Daisy, if people want to read more about uh, things that you're passionate about and 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 lock in with some of your thinking, and uh, if they want to get information on the book that you've just published, um, where should people head? Oh, goodness. Um, well, my website is my name, daisyoj-dominguez.com. Um, and you can find information there about, about my book as well. Um, and my publisher is uh, Hachette Publisher uh, Publishing. Um, and my book is everywhere. As I just found out, it's on, on pre-order um, at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and your local bookstore as well. It's called Inclusion Revolution. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to be able to have it out in the world and to have more conversations about it. It is. And it really is uh, available everywhere and in audio format. So if you're not someone that wants to pick up a book and you want to go for the audio um, version, I've seen a great photo of Daisy um, doing the uh, re- recording for the, for, the audio, for the audio version. Um, uh, go and grab it. Um, Daisy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate uh, you giving up the time and I guess for sharing uh, your wisdom with us. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. I'm delighted to be here and proud of the work that you're doing.
Thanks so much. Um, I need to thank Mel, our producer behind the virtual glass, for keeping the show on the road. To all of you listening along, wherever you are, we really, really appreciate you. And as ever, if you're feeling generous, uh, please do head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon. I've been Ben Branson Gately, your host, and this has been the Culture Ops Podcast.